and I'm tired of him and Napoleon Hill and Tony Robbins and all this kind of woo-woo, you know, Werner Earhart and Est, it's all crap. What is up, you beautiful bastards? It's your boy, Mr. Cut Your Coupons, a.k.a. Rabbi Can Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to Alan Weiss of alanweiss.com. Alan wrote one of my favorite books of all time, Million Dollar Consulting. This is one of my favorite episodes so far of the year. I can't wait for you to hear Alan. He has insanely strong opinions that go against the norm. I first heard of Alan when I visited my ex-girlfriend in college who lived in Wilmette, Illinois, in this gigantic house, and her dad was super rich. So I asked him, I said, how did you get so rich? And he actually gave me a copy of Alan's book, Million Dollar Consulting, and he said, this is the book that helped me get rich. And so if you've ever wanted to learn about growing a business from nothing, whether it's consulting or not, I think you're going to love this episode. In this conversation, you're going to learn seven big things, yes, seven, because YOLO, from this conversation. Number one, why most self-help is bullshit and can be a multi-level marketing scam. Two, the one thing that's more important than getting customer buy-in. Three, how grammar and using correct language is super important in securing potential clients or buyers. Four, how to fix imposter syndrome and get real self-esteem, real dog. Five, lessons from someone who got fired from a powerful position and how to start again from nothing. Six, how to not leave money on the table when communicating your worth. And seven, there's no such thing as retirement. Alan Weiss is the man. I'm super excited to share this chat with him. Enjoy. Quick plug, you know it's Small Business Month here at the Noah Kagan Presents podcast, number one show for entrepreneurs. I want to make sure that you're taking action and growing your small or large business. Leave a comment at okdork.com slash win, and I will PayPal you one buck. There's no catch. And for five lucky, lucky, lucky listeners like yourself, I'm going to give away even bigger prizes. That includes flying out to Austin for a day, putting up in a hotel, a thousand bucks cash, $250 appsumo.com credit, lunch with my boy Neville, a group workshop where we work on your problems, and a memorable trip. So go check it out. Okdork.com win. Special shout out for the show is going to go to David Cadavy of the Love Your Work podcast. I've known David for a super long time and I love him. He messaged me and said, dude, I listened to every minute of your episode. That really meant a lot to me and I appreciate what you said, David. If you want a shout out on a future episode, leave a review on iTunes. I check every single one or email me podcast at okdork.com with how this podcast impacted you. Let's get it on. What I was excited to tell you is like, do you know how I found out about you? I do not. I, I think you'll appreciate the story. I was dating a girl in college, and I got invited to her father's house in Wilmette, Illinois. And I went into this house, and it was a mansion. And I was in college, and I said, you're so rich. And I'm like, what do you do? He's like, consulting. I was like, how did you get so rich? I want to be this rich one day. And he handed me your book. <laughs> he said, read Million Dollar Consulting by Alan Weiss. And you can have a house like this. And that's how I found out about you. And, and your book is one of my favorite books about not just consulting, but about business. Okay. You wrote that book. I guess for you, what is as writing books? It seems like you've written a lot of them. How has that changed your business being an author? Well, there are only so many ways you can market yourself. And when I was fired in 85, I could write and I could speak. Those are my two great strengths. I didn't like networking and I didn't like cold calling and things like that. But I could write and speak very well. And so I wrote and I spoke. And I started writing books and I started speaking at conventions. And if you put a thousand people in front of me in a room today and you ask, how did you hear of me? Three quarters will say my books. You know, another 20% will say we heard you or saw you somewhere. And the rest will say somebody mentioned you to me. So that's been primarily how I've attracted people to me. Well, taking a quick step back, how did you get fired? And then how did you start using words and books to uh, grow a business? 
I was um, invited up to Rhode Island to be president of a behavioral consulting firm. It was owned by W. Clement Stone, the, the financier who believed in positive mental attitude. But Stone believed that positive mental attitude was behind his success. He had $400 million. And I told him the reason he had positive mental attitude was because he had $400 million. And uh, if he gave everyone $400 million, they'd all have positive mental attitudes. He had his cause and effect is called etiology, and he had his etiology mixed up. And he didn't like that, so he fired me. He fired me in the Admiral's Club at American in um, O'Hare. So I called my wife, and she said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, no moron will ever fire me again. I'm going on my own. And she said, fair enough, but you'd better get serious. And I did. Okay, so do you, you remember that day, I'm guessing, that you got fired? Of course. He had a cane. Uh, he had uh, an entourage, one of whom was Nixon's former press secretary. You know, Stone was a powerful guy. Stone is a guy who bailed out Napoleon Hill and went drunk. Napoleon Hill was a fraud. Think and Grow Rich is a fraud. W. Clement Stone bailed him out when he went broke. He didn't fire just because you thought, hey, your attitude's because you're rich. Well, we didn't agree on things. I mean, I was going to try to make this company grow. It was, you know, a several million dollar company. And it did legitimate behavioral testing. We had, on our board of advisors, we had two former presidents of the American Psychological Association and so on. But he was into this PMA stuff, this positive mental attitude stuff. And he made his money in industrial insurance, which was selling for two pennies or so a week to people working in factories in the 20s insurance so they wouldn't be buried in a pauper's field. And then when he, for two cents a week, and the, when he made his fortune, he was smart enough to get financial people who invested it well, but it had nothing to do with positive mental attitude. And I'm tired of him and Napoleon Hill and Tony Robbins and all this kind of woo-woo, you know, Werner Earhart and Est, it's all crap. Tell me more about that. You know, Werner Earhart, for example, who started Earhart Seminar Training, Est, he's still around, by the way, he's in his 80s. His real name was Jack Rosenberg. <laughs> he said he had an epiphany crossing the Golden Gate Bridge in the California Senate Est. Well, he didn't have so much of an epiphany. He was fleeing from his wife, who was seeking a divorce. And he started this crap called Est. You know, you stood there for 48 hours, and you couldn't go to the bathroom until they told you. And it was all about looking in people's eyes and all this nonsense. But what were people looking for? They're looking for the silver bullet, looking for the magic bullet. And there is no magic bullet. Motivation is intrinsic. It's internal. You can't motivate someone else. There's no such thing as a motivational speaker. And consequently, people have wasted huge amounts of their time and their repute and their money on all of this falsity. What people need are two things. They need pragmatic skills, and they also need to boost their self-esteem. People have very low self-esteem by and large. What I do in my work is I give people skills. I tell them how to write proposals. I tell them how to find a buyer. I tell them what language to use, showing them the exercises and the behaviors and the attitudes and so forth that are required so you feel better about yourself. So why do you think people buy into it? Do you think they buy into it because it seems easier than what you're going to teach them? Like, why do you think Tony Robbins and all these guys are, are so popular and people relate to them so much? Well, there are three reasons. The first reason is Tony Robbins is a superb marketer. He is one of the best marketers I've ever seen. People are looking for an easy way to riches. They're looking for an easy way to wealth. They don't want to work hard. And so they're reading these self-help books that don't help you know, books like The Secret and The Celestine Prophecy and all this garbage. And they're going to workshops and seminars and rallies. The worst example today, the worst example is multi-level marketing, which is a Ponzi scheme. They call it network marketing and multi-level marketing. It's crap. It's illegal. It's unethical. And because it contributes nothing to the environment, I recruit four people. I make money on that. They recruit 16 people. They buy me. But by the fourth level, you're out of people. And anybody coming in after that gets soaked. You know, it's like a, a huge Amway deal, right? So that's one of the worst, most egregious examples of it. I mean, that's what Bernie Madoff was trying to do, and he's in jail. 
The other reason, though, of the two reasons, is there's something I call a threshold. And a threshold occurs when normative pressure overrides your belief system. So the reason that people riot, most people riot, is that everyone around them is rioting. The reason that soldiers flee the front from an enemy, even though they might have superior firepower, is people around them are fleeing. Whereas my belief system is I should stand and fight, whereas my belief system is I should not riot. When everybody around me is doing it, I join in because the normative pressure is so heavy, is so intense, it overwhelms my belief system. And that's what I call the threshold. The threshold's overcome. And so seven people say, come with us to Est. 40 people say, come on, Tony Robbins will have a thousand people in the auditorium. And so I go. And that's what happens. Have you ever gone to a Tony or Est or any of these I've things? met Tony Robbins and uh, I've never gone to Est. You don't have a gun big enough. There is no more Est. He started something called Forum and now he's doing some other stupid thing. But I never went to that. There's not a weapon large enough to get me in the room. You'd have to kill me. <laughs> I've seen Tony Robbins perform and that's what he does. He performs. And uh, he's a fascinating guy. I mean, he's got a real stage presence. He's this huge guy. He has a command of the language. He knows how to speak very, very well. And he's a great marketer. What he tells you is effervescent. It, it leaves in, in 90 seconds. It's gone. There's nothing. There's no there there. Because it is something that I've noticed from a lot of people, including some of my best friends and myself, where I think your material is so great. But you have other people who you don't think their material is as good, but they spend all their time marketing it. And then you're spending a lot more time actually like on the quality of your material and not as much time necessarily on the marketing, and you're saying the product will market itself. Well, the difference is this. There are a lot of people who focus on marketing because they're focused on making money. I'm focused on providing value. And so I'm not looking to take people's money. I'm looking to give them something. Now, in giving them something, they pay me, I mean, which is the capitalist system. But there are people on the web right now, as you and I speak, just hustling. They're selling videos on how to sell other people videos to sell other people videos. It's the Ponzi scheme right? I fired a guy two years ago. It's my technical guy. I fired him two years ago because he was on these get-rich-quick schemes. And I just don't want that around me. Did he try to get you on one of them? He, uh, he wanted me to join in. He, he wanted my content because <laughs> he had no content. He did unethical things. He did illegal things. But he was pond scum. And he wasn't that way always, but he was converted to this money, 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 money thing. That's not how you live your life in my book. How do you like to live it? You live a quality life by contributing to others. And you can't really help others unless you help yourself. It's the oxygen mask principle on an airline. And so you help yourself, healthy selfishness, not unhealthy selfishness, healthy selfishness, so you can help others. And if you take care of yourself, you can help others. I just came back from Florida where I did a pro bono speech for a chapter down there. And it was wildly successful. And uh, people were really glad I came. It didn't cost them a penny. They don't pay for my expenses, my time, nothing. And I don't sell them a thing. There's nothing for sale. I couldn't do that if I weren't doing well myself. You talked about that you think the two things that you really help people with, and, and I'm curious, you know, maybe what's one thing for my audience, which is like a pragmatic skill and something with self-esteem. What, what is something that someone listening now, what's a skill that maybe they can go work on based on your suggestion and then something to, to help? Because I know for me, I, you know, I definitely struggle with self-esteem at times too. Well, let me, let me give you two skills. That's what you asked me for. I'll give you two skills that are important. One skill is critical thinking skills. And you have to be able to understand how to make a decision, how to solve a problem. For example, you can't remove a problem without finding its cause, how to resolve conflict, and so forth and so on. Those are what I call critical thinking skills. The other skill I talk about, and maybe the most primary one to success, is language. People do not know how to use the language. And consequently, they don't advance sufficiently. They take too much time communicating, and they don't communicate rapidly or accurately. I had a coaching client in Japan who... Um, 
said to me just this morning, uh, here's what I did with a client prospect. And the prospective buyer never got to the point where he would accept a proposal from me. I said, that's because you never said to him, I can help you. You danced around this thing intellectually, but you never said, I see what you're saying. I know how you feel. I can help you. You never got there. And so you didn't engage. So these are the example of the kind of skills that are very, very important. But people, they get tricked by what you're calling the marketing that other people do. You know, posting something on social media isn't marketing. It's only marketing when you're creating a need among your ideal buyer. People are ideal buyers, not trolling the internet, not trolling social media platforms trying to find you. I mean, all the evidence is to the contrary, but people want to believe that. So it sounds like for language, is it just practicing it? Is it just writing more? Are there books you recommend? Like what is something that I could do to improve my language skill? Well, first of all, you need to learn grammar. And so you should get a good style book and learn grammar. You know, I'm tired of people saying, you know, between you and I, I'm tired of people not understanding that none means not one. So you have to watch the tense. None know is correct. None knows is correct. Not one knows. So among educated people and powerful people, people who can spend money, these are important things. It's like using your silverware correctly. You know, I've sat down to lunch and dinner with people who use their silverware as though they're a caveman eating some kind of primitive reptile. And I'm not impressed. <laughs> you have to know the language. I have a, an electronic book called The Martial Arts of Language. And The Martial Arts of Language talks about using the other person's momentum and turning it around. So, for example, I sat down with a guy a few years ago and he said to me, you know, I built my career Fortune 500 consultant, top companies. He says to me, this company has never used an outside consultant, and I am not about to, and I want to tell you that right now. Now, most people would have crumbled. They would have packed their tent and gone. And I said to him, you'd be surprised at how many of my best clients today started the conversation the same way. And what I did was I completely moved the frame. His frame was, we never hired consultants. My frame was, every time I hear that, you become a customer. Part of the martial arts of language. You can't run away. You're on the wrong, we're in California. You're on the East Coast. That's exactly why you need me. You don't charge by the hour. You charge based on value. You're a lone wolf. You don't have resources. You don't have people. You don't have staff. That's exactly why you need me. And when you do that, you turn the conversation around. The other person's back on his heels for a couple of seconds, and you own it. And that's a book you wrote? Martial Arts and Language. Yeah. So it's a little electronic book. And I had people send me their hardest language challenges. You know, a client says, we have no money. A client says, we have no time. A client says, well, I have to hire somebody first. Here's the language you use to overcome that. What's the no money one? I hear that a lot. Well, it's easy. Money, see, is not a resource. Money is a priority. So when you tell me, you know, Alan, I'd love to do this, but I have no money. I say to you, of course you have money. The lights are on. Parking lot's paved. People are at work. Of course you have money. You're paying salaries. The question is what you do with your money. And what I'm telling you is you'd be better off taking it from over there and giving it to me. See, that's what buyers do. They change priorities. But most people think money's a resource. Once you tell them there's no money, they leave. You see the difference? It's all mental. It's a self-esteem issue. I have no time. Of course you have time. I have no time to see my kid's soccer game. You do have time. You're choosing not to go there. I always want to declare you are the greatest consultant ever living, like ever been made. Probably. Okay. So language, amazing. With self-esteem, is there things that you recommend for someone starting out or someone experienced? Yeah. Most people feel they're imposters. Most people feel that they're going to be found out. They're not as good as they say they are. They're not as good as other people think they are. And they're going to be found out. I have a sign inside with a picture of two of my dogs. And it says, my goal in life, my goal in life is to be as good as my dogs think I am. You know, <laughs> we feel like imposters. So the way you build your self-esteem 
is by understanding there's a difference between your efficacy, which is how well you do things, and your self-worth. Big difference. And so I might be good or bad at doing something. It's got nothing to do with my self-worth as a person. So just because I have a big victory doesn't increase my self-worth. Just because I have a huge defeat doesn't decrease my self-worth. I am who I am. I'm a valuable human being. But what we do is we attribute not just victories and defeats, but our last conversations, what people say to us 20 seconds ago, to our self-worth. And that's why you should never listen to unsolicited feedback. We spend our lives listening to people like we're ping pong balls. You know, speakers, you have smile sheets. People fill out sheets and evaluate them. Unsolicited feedback's always for the sender. It's not for the recipient. So unless you ask someone you respect specifically for feedback, don't listen to it. It's an important part of your self-esteem. Every morning, you should tell yourself, here are two or three positive things I'm going to do today. And every evening, you tell yourself, here are two or three things I did really well today. Now, you might have had some things you didn't do well. You might have had some defeats. Some things might have gone south. But some things did well. And you've got to remind yourself morning and night of what these things are. Let your subconscious work on it. Obviously, you have a ton of experience. Where did you learn from? Like, where did you get your language jujitsu? and the ways to build self-esteem when you were coming up and you were getting started, or, and even now? The, well, those are two very different things. Language I got from grammar school. When I went to grammar school, teachers taught. They appeared in business attire, not jeans and old shirts, and they didn't try to be like the students, and you respected teachers, and the parents backed you up, and I learned grammar. I learned the eight parts of speech. I learned grammar. I learned how to diagram a sentence, and most of my education was in grammar school. High school was easy. There was nothing to it, and then I went to Rutgers, and undergraduate school was tough but fun, and I knew how to write, and other people didn't know how to write. So that's how I learned speech and grammar. I was elected to office. You know, I was the president of student council. I was this, I was that. So I, was, I got up on my feet and spoke, and I got used to speaking. Self-esteem, I was a scared little kid. Uh, you know, I had very low esteem. We were poor, and it was tough. But along the way, I realized that if you understand that you cannot replicate other people's backgrounds, in other words, people who were born wealthy, you can't replicate that. You're who you are. People who have more resources, you're who you are, and you make the best of what you have, you become resilient. And when you become resilient, your self-esteem improves. And if you remain competitive and you don't run away, you don't shy away from fights, you remain competitive, you'll win more than you lose and your self-esteem blossoms. I cannot intimidate anyone. People allow themselves to be intimidated. I can't motivate someone. People motivate themselves or they don't. And we have to take on this personal accountability. But instead, go back to what we were talking about earlier. Instead of taking on the accountability for contributing, for being motivated, you know, for understanding what my contributions are, I want to go to some workshop and have somebody tell me that I'm my own best friend. And if I say rah, rah, rah three times an hour, I'll be magic. You know, it's crap. It's baloney. Maybe uh, taking a step back to your journey. So you were, you got fired by this, you know, super rich guy. Yeah. At the Admiral's Lounge. Yeah. And you, you didn't, it sounded like you were starting from zero there. Oh, yeah. We only had a few hundred dollars in the bank. My kids were in private school. We were in a big house. We had moved to Rhode Island. Yeah. I mean, we. <laughs> and my wife said, get serious. And I said, fair enough. And what I did was I thought of every possible contact I had developed over the years, and I let them know what, where I was and what I was doing, which was I was on my own. Don't forget, there was no internet. And so I had to contact them by letter and by phone. And I told them I was on my own. I was consulting in organization development and that I was improving individual and organizational performance. That was my value proposition. And people started to say, well, why don't you stop right and see us? 
I bought a good suit, which we couldn't afford, and I flew first class, which we couldn't afford, and I had limos take me, which we couldn't afford. And my wife said, you know, why are you doing this? I said, well, we're already in debt, so a little more debt won't hurt. But if I'm going to show up at the office of a powerful buyer, I'm not showing up sweaty and wrinkled and lost. I'm showing up as a peer of that buyer. I'm going to look as successful as the buyer. And it worked. Okay, you made it sound way too easy. So if I buy a suit and get a limo, then I, then I just get money. And you have an important value proposition and you can use language well. Yes, it's that easy. Yeah, it, you said it in the beginning, and I do agree, we're, myself included, we're always looking for the next silver bullet when most of the time it's coming to someone helping them out, and then they get excited to pay you if you're doing something that's important for them. Right. I mean, if you can find what your real value is, which isn't that difficult, and you can find who your ideal buyer is, which isn't that difficult, that is the person who's going to pay you for your value, then the only other thing to complete my marketing plan here is to determine how you're going to reach them and how they're going to reach you. If I write a book, they're going to find out about me, right? If I speak, they're going to hear me. If I get a reference from someone I know, I'm going to go see them. It's easy for you now because you've been doing it for so long. I think a lot of people out there may not realize the steps they need to take, but... Uh, well, hold on. That's a cop-out. A lot of people tell me <laughs> I can speak this way now. The fact is, you can ask my wife, you can ask anyone. I spoke the same way then. And I found that if you speak with knowledge and confidence, people listen. If you're afraid, if you're trying to please them, they won't listen. The whole thing about this business is to be respected, not liked. When too many people are looking for affection, you want to be loved, get a dog. It's about being respected. I appreciate the call out. I appreciate it. That's what I do. In my mind, I can't imagine being in debt and saying, all right, well, I'm going to just go further in debt. Right. I'm curious how you were feeling then. And then when you went to these businesses, you know, you said it generally like, hey, I'm going to do some organization stuff. I think part of what I'm wondering is how did you figure out what to even sell them? I wasn't selling. See, that's the thing you have to understand. I said, look, I improve individual and organizational performance. They said, well, stop around. And I'd stop around and I'd develop a relationship. See, I realized two things when I went out on my own. One, this is a relationship business. And two, you never want to charge by a time unit or a head or a body in a seat or anything like that. I, I want to charge by value. And so the first thing you do, you establish a trusting relationship. And we'd sit and talk and sit and talk. And I'd listen. I'd say, well, three times now you've mentioned the need to retain top talent. I've heard you say it three different times. They said, yeah. I said, why is that? And they'd say, well, you know, we don't pay the highest salaries in the field. And our competition is often stealing talent from us. And it costs us a lot of money. And I would say, if I could save you some of that money, would that be of interest? And they'd say, well, yeah, how would you do that? And I would say, if I can ask you a few questions, I'll have a proposal on your desk tomorrow. That's how it works. I didn't sell them a thing. What I gave them was value in reducing attrition or in change management or in greater sales, whatever it happened to be. And I would do anything unless it was technical or financial because technical and financial things bore me to tears. And so I won't do them. But the secret of a career is you do what you love and you're great at and you charge for it. How does someone find what they love and what they're great at? If they are incapable of finding that out themselves, just get a great coach. But get a great coach who's done what you need to do. In other words, if you want to learn to ski, for example, you don't get somebody sitting in the lodge sipping brandy who says, look, when you go up there by yourself in the morning, here's what you should do. You get a coach who goes up there with you and he's six yards ahead of you, showing you how to bend the knees, how to traverse the mountain, you know, and so forth and so on. You need to get somebody who's been there and done that. There is more schlock out there. You know, there are universities certifying coaches. That's another piece of ridiculousness. You need to find somebody who's been there and done that and can convey to you the skills that you need for you to get there and do that. 
it's interesting because I think one of your messages that I've always really appreciated is that it's a reminder because I get to talk with you is that you're not ever selling, you're educating. Right. And that you're actually saying, here's what I think it's going to help you. And then they're like, oh, shit, I can pay you to do that for me and solve that problem. Well, it's about value. It's about helping people improve. See, the real issue here is after I walk away, how's the client better off? And if that's not easily seen or perceived, then I'm up the creek. So there's got to be a demonstrable improvement in the client's condition, whether the client's an individual, a coaching client, or it's an organization. But if that improved condition isn't there, I haven't earned my money. Did it work just right away? Like you started your company, hit up a few, and it just was immediate? Or did you have some challenges getting going? Or what were some of the challenges? I had challenges getting going. I mean, the first year I made $67,000, right? And this is 1986 or whenever it was. And, you know, even back then, that was a great deal of money. And the challenges were getting enough people to know I was there. And the challenges were convincing people that I was a great resource to use instead of hiring at the time there were big eight, you know, one of these humongous firms who descended with 300 people. But the second year I made a hundred and a quarter and the third year I made 250 something. And I wrote million dollar consulting in 1991. So you have to have the faith. What do you think were the elements that helped you double the business till you got to the million dollar consulting? Well, I was fearless. You know, you said before, I think I'd have trouble being in debt and going into more debt. I had no trouble with that. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? And so, you know, we sell the house. I mean, so what? You know, I was young, right? I was in my late 30s. So I think that I was fearless. I think that I have huge language capabilities, huge vocabulary, a huge ability to use language. And I come across as very, very smart. People want smart people around. You know, I talked to a guy who was at Marine Midland Bank, an executive who, Marine Midland Bank is now part of HSBC, you know, but at the time it was a huge bank. And I had 45 minutes with him, executive vice president. And in 45 minutes, I could not find a project. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> I had nothing. So he says, uh, Alan, look, I'm sorry, I got to go. And I said, Keith, I know. He said, well, look, call me Monday, we'll set something up. And I said, what will we set up? He said, well, I don't know. He said, but we need smart people here. And I work with him through four organizations. And he came to my 70th birthday party a couple of years ago in New York. People need talent around them because they don't have residual talent in their organizations. Individuals, solo practitioners, entrepreneurs need talent because they've got nobody who knows how to talk to them and to help them. What do you think of the elements of someone who's a million-dollar consultant or million-dollar entrepreneur versus you know, the other people who are just regular? More zeros. <laughs> people don't think big. I was on stage once. I forget where I was. It was Australia or... I don't know, New Zealand someplace. And this guy had this big convention of people who owned accounting firms, 500 people in the audience, whatever it was. And this woman came up from the audience who volunteered, and she just closed a $4,500 piece of business. And I took her through the relationship she had with the client and what was said, and I turned it into 45000 right there in 15 minutes. And she began weeping. <laughs> and I said, listen, do this in the future. Don't leave more money on the table. It's good to learn it now and not three years from now. Do it in the future. So, you know, it's the question of whether people, I call it having the courage of your talent. And if you understand what your talent really is and you're courageous, that is fearless, then you know how to charge for your talent. $100,000 today, Noah, is not what it used to be. You know, I'm a car guy. 20 years ago, there were probably seven or eight cars in this country that cost $100,000. Today, there are 35 or so. I just came from a showroom looking at still another one. And people spend, organizations spend $100,000 to mist the plants in the office buildings. They spend $100,000 to clear the crap off the parking lot. So asking somebody for $100,000 these days is not that big a deal. 
so for that woman and in general to get the more zeros of a million dollar consultant, is it being more fearless and then thinking, how am I creating more value for this person? Exactly. She was looking at her deliverables. She was looking at her tasks, deliverables and tasks, training, you know, materials, reports, they're worthless. It's the results they produce that are important. And so we have to base our fees on results on the output side, not the input side. I mean, you're going to pay a couple of million dollars for a Picasso painting based on the number of brushstrokes he took? <laughs> a lot of my audience has a day job. A lot of them are working at some big tech company or marketing agency or something like that. They're in prison. Yes. they Literally, they have four walls. Yeah. Just they have more windows. I agree. What do you recommend for people interested? Get out. Okay. That's what I recommend. Get out. If not, now when? Well, what I was specific is that if they wanted to start their own business... Is it look through their network? And I, and I like that you mentioned that. It's like, hey, hit up every one of your contacts. And then is it just go talk to them and see where they need help and then find the most valuable thing? I'll tell you exactly what to do because it's in four or five of my books. I have a book called Million Dollar Launch, which is how to launch a business. Getting Started in Consulting, my second most popular book ever, comes out in April in its fourth edition. Here's what you do. You identify your value. You identify your ideal buyer. And you identify how you can reach them and how they can reach you. You get six months of basic expenses in the bank through saving or borrowing, whatever you want to do, because you're not going to make your first sale for about six months. And then you go out on your own. You do not need an office. You don't need a fancy website. You don't need to hold, spend a, a whole lot of money. But what you need to do is have the discipline to call all of these people, all of your contacts, and either ask them if they'd be interested in the kind of value you have, or if they can give you a recommendation of whom to talk to who would be interested in the kind of value you have. And if you do that, even as seasoned consultants in my community, I have to tell this too. I started with a new coaching client the other day, and I said, I want you to triage your list. Here's what you do for the people in category one, two, and three. And uh, a week later, when we talked again, he had seven appointments. And he said to me, my God, this is magic. It's not magic. You just use discipline to do what I told you to do. Good for you. Now keep doing it. So it's not difficult. This is a great time to be a consultant. The economy is fantastic. Unemployment is functionally zero. And companies need help because they don't have this residual help anymore. I mean, human resources is like an appendix. It's a vestigial organ. It does no good at all. They used to do transactional stuff, which was, you know, relocation and compensation. That's been outsourced. And the transformational stuff, they don't know how to do. And so companies need independent consultants who can come in like a stiletto, get the job done and leave again. My original question that I was curious for you is that you came at a time when you did consulting, I think it sounds like it started in the 80s? I started in a training firm in the 70s. I was fired from this behavioral consulting firm in 85. And so starting in the late 80s, I went on my own as a consultant. The two things I was curious about that is that what are your opinions about how consulting businesses and business in general is run? And then I was actually really even curious, like how has technology changed? Because when you were starting, there was no web, there's no email, and you did well then. And I was curious how you evolved with that. I mean, I did well then because I made use of what was available. Today, it's easier than ever. You can go on the internet and make your case heard. You can have a fancy website if you like. For me, it's sending out newsletters and blogging and so forth that gets people's attention. It's promoting my offerings on the web. So today, it's easier than ever. But again, you need help. In other words, I have a, an outside firm, which is a specialist in social media and in internet stuff. So when I fired my guy two years ago, I brought this firm in and they've done wonders for me. They promote my books and so forth. They run my website. So it's a matter of knowing who to use for what purposes. But basically what hasn't changed, Noah, is it's still a relationship business. And in the 80s, Nesbitt wrote in Megatrends about high tech, high touch. High tech, high touch has not changed. It's still the dynamic. 
And so even today, it's a relationship business. You've got to press the flesh. You've got to meet people and get them to trust you. And once you can do that, you've got business. What has changed that you, you changed your mind on over the years? In consulting or in business? Both. In business, we've come through a period of less focus on organization and more on empathy. You know, we're focused today much more on being sensitive to customers, being sensitive to employees. We're focused much more on social welfare, on correct labor practices, and so on. But most of all, in terms of business, I think that the basic change, the huge change that people have to appreciate is that once upon a time, organizations dispense knowledge about their products and services. And I would learn products and services information and make a decision as to what to buy. Today, all of us have that information. Somebody walks into a dealership and says to the dealer, I know what your car costs in terms of invoice from Detroit. I'll give you $500 over your invoice. We have all the information. The dealership today said, here's our configurator. Go online, configure your car, send it to me, and I'll order it. So the consumer has tremendous power today. In fact, sales forces are going to be obsolete soon because we're really talking about evangelism and no longer sales forces. It's customer to customer to customer that's important. In terms of consulting, what's changed is these huge firms, you know, the big eight are now about the big two and a half and charging by the hour is indecent and unethical. And you don't need content consulting so much. You need process consulting. You know, Ed Shine has a book called Process Consultation. And for 25 years, it's a classic. I wrote a book called Process Consulting about 10 or 15 years ago. And organizations engaged, let's say, in uh, furniture don't need furniture experts, but they need process experts in terms of how to get customers to give them more referrals. And so that's a big change in consulting. I like as well what you said that sales forces are dying and it's more moving to the evangelism. If you look at the work of people like Jonah Berger, I had him as a speaker at one of my events. He wrote Contagion and Invisible Influence. And the research over the past 10 years on this has been absolutely consistent. Most executive level decisions to purchase things are made from word of mouth. It's just like when somebody says to you, I need a good doctor, recommend one, and you do. I need a designer. I need an accountant. We help people out. I trust you. You tell me somebody, I go right to them because that's sufficient credibility. That happens more and more among executive ranks. They don't buy off the internet. They don't buy from advertising. They buy from word of mouth. And what Jonah Berger proved in his research is fascinating. Only 4% of that word of mouth is on the internet. Everything else is really interpersonal. So if you get in that stream of people talking about you, you said you heard of me from your girlfriend's father, right? He said, read this book. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I think his name is Ricky Meta. Actually, it's vaguely familiar. I think he was one of, he might have been a direct client of yours too. Might have been in the venture program way back then, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, 2004 or five. That's interesting on the word of mouth, a, a few other things. When you first came out with your first book, there wasn't web or any of this stuff. How did you actually get the word out to make it so popular? Well, the, the, my first book was The Innovation Formula, which I wrote with a partner who I had known from another lifetime. And the book is still available. It, it went into German. And back in those days, I mean, this was with HarperCollins, a subsidiary of HarperCollins. And I was the writer on the book. I had to rewrite at least half the book. Today, I rewrite nothing. Zero. Nada. Niente. Unless there's, you know, a grammatical error or I repeat a story and the editor says, you know, this is confusing. But back then, I rewrote half the book. So when we got it out, it was really an excellent book. And it was used at the Wharton School. And it was on the curriculum of four schools at one point, you know, Villanova, Temple. We would send the book all over. We would send the book to prospects. And our feeling was that putting a note in the book, which said, look at page 47, we think it's really appropriate, caused people to look instead of just sending the book. I'll tell you another trick that we use, which is great. 
we would personalize one copy. You know, dear Tom, loved hearing about the challenges you have at Caterpillar, right? The other book we would just sign and we'd say to him, here's a book we've personalized for you. We signed the other one. We hope we'll give it to someone you think can need. I mean, it just worked like a charm. People don't throw away signed books. I still do that today. That's awesome. One thing with your business is I noticed in the 80s, you talked about organizational consulting. And now when you go to your website, you have a different angle. I changed. I moved from corporate consulting to individual. So I call it moving from wholesale to retail. And uh, the reason is I got really bored with corporate consulting. I mean, I could walk in the door and it was one of 11 things. It might be four, seven, and nine, but it was one of 11 things. And I can tell you that in 10 minutes, but no buyer who struggled with something for six months or two years is going to listen to me for 10 minutes and pay me $100,000. So I had to go through all the machinations and get a proposal signed and go do research and whatever. When I knew damn well from the outset, what was, you know, somebody should have been fired. Somebody, this should have been changed. And that was driving me crazy. And the politics was driving me crazy. And then when Million Dollar Consulting came out in 92, when it was published, people started asking me for free help. And I started giving it because it was an ego thing. And then in 96, four years later, I said to my wife, I'm going to start charging for my advice. And she said, how are you going to do that? And I said, I'm going to form like a mentor program. And she said, why would people pay you to mentor them? And I said, I don't know that they will, but if there's a charge, they'll stop bothering me. And she said, what are you going to charge? And I said, $3,500 per person for six months. And she said, why 3,500? Was that market research? I said, no, it's the monthly lease on the Ferrari. If I get 12 people. (laughs) This is three Ferraris and an Aston Martin and five Bentleys and a Rolls Royce and a couple of Corvettes and so forth later. So I went to the retail world because there's no politics. I can be harsh. I can call people out. I can talk to them one-on-one and I can do that and also invite them to events. And so I can run a high-end event where I have 20 people in a room for $20,000 each. Or I can have 150 people in a room for $1,000 each. And where I go in the world, people come. Dubrovnik, Bora Bora, Australia, doesn't matter. Wherever I am, people will come. And it, for me, for my temperament, I'd much rather do this than corporate consulting right now. What's your daily driver? Well, my daily driver is my roles. But I have a Z06 vet there that is my toy. And that's faster than any Ferrari. 2.90 to 60. Yeah, I would assume, well, I guess with million dollars consulting, I would assume you should be able to buy the things you want, which may be nice cars or may whatever kind of thing people want to do. That's right. Whatever floats your boat. But my wife and I can also pick up and go whatever vacation we want. I mean, we went on a safari to Africa last year, which we always wanted to do. And I took the whole family. And so, I mean, like I say, you help yourself, you help others. Did you go to Budapest as well? I see the shirt. Yeah, I'm half Hungarian. And so we always wanted to take a river cruise. People talk about river cruise, river cruise. We never did it. So finally I said, why don't we get serious? And so we chose Viking, which, you know, advertises incessantly. But in the back of the boat, you know, I don't like being with strangers, really. But in the back of the boat, they got this big damn suite in the back of these river boats. So we took that and we went through all these canals on the Danube, wherever we were. The No, maybe it was the Rhine. I don't know. Anyway, off we went. And we stopped in these towns. Yeah, we stopped in Vienna and so forth. And great meals, great tours. And we ended in Budapest. That was the end of the trip. And since I'm half Hungarian, it was a real treat. And we had just a fabulous time. It was about eight days. You know, I would do it again on another cruise. That's how good it was. That's awesome. Yeah. Budapest, I think, is one of the most underrated cities in Europe. Budapest, Prague. We're going to Dubrovnik later this year. These are fabulous towns. I think uh, on one heart, our significant others help make us a lot better in business. My girlfriend actually joked with me two days ago. She's like, I'm not your employee. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and I call them teammates instead of employees, but I thought that was interesting. How has that been in your relationship? It sounds like you guys have been together a while. Well, we're married 50 years and we'll generally pick a place to go where we've never been or my wife wants to go back to or things like that. We'll be in, I'm going to be in Sicily uh, in April on a business meeting, but you know, we'll extend it and have a vacation there as well. My wife's Italian, but once in a while, my wife used to say, you know, you're not in the office right now, you're home. But you know, we, I have no staff. My wife is a good sounding board. You know, we sort of debrief when we have dinner, we eat out every night and we debrief might be 10 minutes or an hour, but I'll get her opinion on things. That's it. We have interests that overlap and we have interests that are entirely separate. How come you didn't do any staff? Like I was actually curious your management style. Like obviously, you know, you figured out how to do this consulting thing amazingly well. I was curious if you built a staff and if not, why not? When I got fired, I said to my wife, I'm going to get, go out and get an office. And she said, why? I said, well, I need an office. You know, she said, why? She said, people aren't going to come to you. You go to them. She said, if you need an office later, get one. And I calculated that by not having an office at one point, I had saved $450,000 in rent and utilities and part-time help. And $450,000 was exactly what it cost me for both my kids' college tuition. Well, I should say for private school, from first grade through college, private school for both was $450,000. I've never needed a staff because I'm very, very efficient. So for example, if I need to travel somewhere, I have a very special relationship with American Express. You could have this with any travel agent. But I call American Express or I write to them and I say, here's what I want. And then they take care of it for me. I have an outsourced, you know, social media technology firm. I have a guy who does graphics for me. Well, what do I need a staff for? It's only overhead. You know, 90% of what I make, I keep. I think there's trade-offs to it. I think sometimes an office helps and I'm leaning more to the remote team. You know what? There are these Regency, whatever they are, offices where you share. Yeah. There's a common receptionist. There's a conference where you want to use it. You know, probably cost you $1,000 a month. You know, what, what do you need your own office for? You're not IBM. <laughs> There's a woman who's been in my program for over a decade. She said a really funny thing. When she has a, about a six, $7 million company, her employees have been from 12 to about 20 at any given time, but they're employees. And she said to me, sometimes when I come back from a trip and I land, it's like landing back in the nest and all these baby birds are chirping, chirp, 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 feed me, feed me, feed me. <laughs> and I'm the one on the plane finding food, she says. <laughs> I think for you, you would argue that the fundamentals don't change. Like you go to someone, you help them out, they pay you. I think in terms of like a tech company, the certain staff has changed to the expectations, which, you know, when you hear funny, I had a guy yesterday, he's really impressive, 24 year old. He's like, you know, I feel like I've been working a lot. I think I need to go take a break. He's 24. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're making six figures and it's a different world. But I think there are people out there that do also want to work that have different attitudes. Let me tell you something. I never argue with success and to each his own. No problem. However, there's no such thing as retirement. It's an artifact. And I wrote a book called Three Score and More uh, about a year ago. Retirement's an artifact, not because people need the money and there's not enough money. As well. I mean, some people are in that position. But the fact is, uh, there's this great quote, uh, men don't stop playing games because they grow old. They grow old because they stop playing games. And to stay rich cognitively, to stay on top of things, you have to keep working. And even as a youth, if you just take it easy, your cognitive ability will decline. If you don't face challenges on a regular basis, your ability to deal with challenges will decline. And if you're not involved in business, in the community, with friends, and so forth, you deteriorate. And so what we're seeing, for example, the reason the United States is so damn competitive is that in Germany, people take 12 weeks vacation, and Italy closes down for a month or whatever it is. The United States has the highest productivity rate in the world, but I fear it's going to change because of the attitude that you're talking about. So I don't demand that people work their fingers to the bone, but I do think that life's about more 
than uh, sitting back and putting your feet up and taking it easy. How many gardens can you tend? I love it. How do you challenge yourself? Where are you challenging yourself today? I keep reinventing myself. So about three quarters of my income, about 75% of my income comes from things that didn't exist three to five years ago, which was, by the way, the uh, strategy of 3M at one point. So I launch new things. If they don't work, they don't work. I don't care. Self-esteem thing. I don't care. I'll launch something else. I'll give you an example. Five, six years ago, whatever it was, I launched my own credit card. <laughs> Were they, the and Weiss so, credit card? The Allen card, $55,000, and you get 75000 in credits from my various events and experiences, which I put on all the time. The Buddy card is 35000 The Bentley card, named after my dogs, the Bentley card, is $20,000. Then... Two years, three years ago, I launched a Rolls card, Rolls Royce card. It's a hundred thousand dollars, and for five years you can t- attend anything you want that I do, subscribe to anything you want for free for five years. I've sold six Rolls cards, and if you look at all the cards together, it's a one point eight million dollar annual business. That's what happens when you're willing to take a chance, and when things don't work, you flush them out and you try something else. So. I keep myself excited because on the business side, I'm constantly looking at things like that to do, to help people and to see what the configuration is. On the personal side, I've got about a dozen hobbies and I pursue them avidly. And I work, if I'm not on the road, you know, if I'm not on an airplane going to Africa or something, I work about 20 hours a week. Fridays, I generally don't work at all. And I'll go to my cigar club and I'll play with my trains and I'll get a massage and we'll go to dinner, that kind of thing. And so I work at a very reasonable pace for me, but I'm tremendously productive. How do you organize yourself for the year? I don't. I don't even know what that would mean. <laughs> I, I guess I was thinking, do you set like yearly goals for yourself? Like this year, I'm going to launch new cards. No, these things come upon me and I do them. Maybe I'm not that deep. But here's the problem with making a plan. You know, People love to make plans, right? And they'll tell you in consulting, make a business plan. You don't need a business plan. The trouble with a plan is you hit it. I found this in the corporate world and I found it in the entrepreneurial world. If you make a plan... You hit it when you should probably have done more. And if you don't hit it, you get upset with yourself. So you say, my plan is to make $500,000. And you make it. You say, look at that. But you should have made seven fifty. Or my plan is to make five hundred, and you make four and a quarter, and you're unhappy because you missed your plan. Whereas four and a quarter is quite nice, right? So plans are stupid as far as I'm concerned. What do you do instead? I don't do anything instead. I live my life. I mean, I have a schedule here. You know, this is my file of facts. I have a schedule. It tells me where I'm supposed to be when. Like for your cards, you didn't say, hey, my goal is to sell a million dollars worth. You were just like, let me just see how this goes. Let me see how it goes. If something's successful, I exploit it. If something's not successful, I stop it. Well, I like your approach to it, which is I think people are self-limiting or potentially. We're like, oh, I'll do a million. And guess what? You'll only go as high as you're set. I guess what I was wondering, (laughs) I wonder if people are successful to some extent, they're never satisfied. Because if you were satisfied, you would have kept your day job. Yeah, I think there's a difference. That's a good point you raised. But there's a difference between being satisfied and being happy. When I coached uh, corporate executives, the first question I asked them was, are you having fun? And they would look at me like I was crazy. I like fun is not allowed. But the fact is, unless you're having fun, you're not going to be successful. And I think that we all deserve to be happy. And if we're happy, we're much more productive and we contribute more. And so I hope my kids are happy and I try to be happy. But a satisfied is not part of my equation. I did go to a Tony Robbins event three years ago. I was feeling low self-esteem, low self-worth. I did walk out, actually, I left, because it was pretty much exactly what you're saying, where it was like, I'm going to cure your dad issues in four minutes. (laughs) Literally, that's how it felt. But he did say something that stuck with me, and I guess this alone made the event worth it, which was, 
there's no point in all this work without fulfillment. And I think whatever you want to label it as, and, and I like your point as well. I thought that was really strong too. It's like, don't retire, just stay active, stay engaged in whatever it is life that you're interested in. There's always a germ of something you could say. I call it the 1% solution. You know, if you improve at 1% a day in 70 days, you're twice as good. I always try to find the 1% somewhere. And even in this horrible, execrable, terrible book called The Celestine Prophecy, he says something very interesting. He says, you need to stay away from the energy suckers. And that was worth the whole book for me, as bad as it was, because we need to surround ourselves with people who think and support us the way we can think about them and support them in a positive, positive growth manner. And instead, too often, we find energy suckers around us telling us, oh, you can't do that. That won't be successful. I tried that and failed, which is called projection psychologically. And so we need to stay away from people who make us unhappy and hang around people who make us happy. I love it. Alan Weiss, I'm going to send everyone to alanweiss.com. alanweiss.com. A lot of free stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of great stuff. I, I love your books. I still want to recommend. Any other books you've read that have uh, been memorable for you? Well, I mean, the books that have stuck with me are the great works of literature. You know, I mean, The Great Gatsby and um, Grapes of Wrath and uh, Tale of Two Cities. I mean, I learn more from fiction than I do from nonfiction. And business books bore me. But if you read these great works of fiction, you learn a great deal. And it makes you a more well-rounded person. And you can talk to more people. How come you don't write more fiction books? Because I can sit here at my keyboard and write a nonfiction book from my head onto the screen where you're sitting right now. And a publisher wants a book in six months. I promise it in four. I write it in two. I figured out I could actually write a 200-page book in one week if somebody paid me, say, a quarter million dollars. I could do it in 40 hours. But fiction is extraordinarily difficult. It's too much work. And then how do you figure out what you're going to write next for your books? I wrote the book Three Score and More because I thought retirement was a, a hoax. Retirement's stupid. I wrote Three Score and More. Marshall Goldsmith and I got to better. Marshall says that he is the best corporate coach in the world and that I am the best entrepreneurial coach in the world. And so we wrote a book together called Life Storming. It's now in three languages. Life Storming. Life Storming, yeah. It's from uh, Wiley. The book I'm writing now, just today, two publishers expressed interest. I'm going to send them more. Is called Fearlessness. And the book will be about overcoming fears because fears are basically what hold us back and damage our self-esteem. You know, it's funny you say that. When you were talking earlier in the beginning of our chat, you were saying fearlessness, fearless, fearless. I was thinking, I was like, man, that's strong. Just as like the phrase, it's very strong. I, would, I think there's something there with that. Thank you. Thank you. I hope so too. Alan, honestly, a pleasure. I was really looking forward to this. This is better than I could expect. Oh, good. No, I had a great time and I appreciate you making the offer. Thank you. All right, Alan, have a great day. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you loved the episode. If you did, go give Alan some love at alanweiss.com. That's A-L-A-N-W-E-I-S-S.com. And check out all his books on Amazon. My favorite is Million Dollar Consulting. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's consult each other. Before you go, let me know what you thought of the episode by leaving a review on iTunes or email me feedback podcast at okdork.com. I'd love to feature your beautiful face in my next podcast. Also, remember to go to okdork.com slash win. It's Small Business Month. I want to get you some goodies for taking action for yourself. And a final plug goes to my boy, Jason, who's over in the pond of Budapest, as always, for making these podcasts sound super dope. I'm not sure if you guys realize it, but every episode is about two hours long and takes about 10 hours for us to cut everything out. Me, Jason, and David Kelly cut it down to 30 minutes of gold nuggets for your eardrums. That's not earwax. That's gold nuggets for you to kick some ass today. What's your favorite 
brand of hot sauce.